to another episode of the DeCesare Group Podcast, where we highlight the individuals shaping our community. I'm your host, Jim DeCesare, and this week we have someone you all know, a former TV meteorologist and current outreach manager at the Kentucky Mesonet and Climate Center at Western Kentucky University. I'll have more details in just a moment. I need you to do me a favor, though. Follow the DeCesare Group on Facebook, X, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And subscribe to our newsletter, Soki Economic Development and Business News, on our website, thedecesarygroup.com. And, of course, make sure you subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform. Leave us a review and let us know what you think. All right, this week on the Decesary Group podcast, I talk with a man with over two decades of experience covering the highs and lows of weather events in South Central Kentucky. I'm talking about none other than Shane Hollandy. Shane's passion for weather science and his dedication to public outreach make him a leader in his profession. From the screen to the classroom, he's been instrumental in translating complex weather concepts into accessible knowledge for audiences of all ages. Here's my conversation with Shane Hollandy. Shane, thanks for being on the Decesary Group podcast. Good to see you. Good to see you, Jim. How are things going? It's going pretty well. So we, we've missed you on the TV, but you're still around. You're still on WGGC radio every day, given, given the weather or updating us on what's happening out there with your AccuWindow weather. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a weather rock? Uh, no, I don't, but I have seen one of those. Oh, and yeah. obviously, if it blows away, you, know, you know what happens. If it's wet, it's raining. Yeah. yeah. So anyhow, so you were at, at BKO for 22 years, and now you're at the uh, Kentucky Mesonet at Western Kentucky University. Um, how do these these two roles complement each other, other than you being a meteorologist? And it, it all has to do with weather, but... but that's that's a that's kind of a transition from being in, in broadcasting for so long and then going to work uh, on the other end. It was a little bit jarring, especially having worked in TV for over 22 years and at one place, at one station, and at one market. And I know it was a shock to many when I made the move out of broadcasting and television, at least full time last mm-hmm. year, and into this role of Kentucky Mesonet, but. I felt the time was right for a number of reasons. Uh, one, on a personal note, this allows me more time with my family in this sure. new position. It's hard to find something along an eight to five line in meteorology because let's face it, weather is 24 yeah. 7, 365. Mother Nature doesn't care what's going on. So, at least with the new gig now, I've got more time to take my daughter to, to sporting events, take her to extracurriculars. And that was time that, that was becoming more precious, especially the older she got. But from a professional standpoint, this now allows me to sort of spread my wings a little bit and get to know more about this science of meteorology from a different perspective and also get to know more about climate and weather history. I've always been something of a historian when it comes to Kentucky weather. I've lived here all my life. So I felt that that part of the transition was going to be relatively easy for me. I've been a weather nut since back in 1978 when we had the great blizzard strike Kentucky. I remember that. Uh, I think uh, I was living in Christian County at the time. I think we missed like 19 days of school that year because of, of all the rain and or all the snow. And then, of course, you go back a few years earlier to, to I think, 74 when they had the great tornado outbreak mm-hmm. uh, in western Kentucky as well. So, you know, there, and, and we'll talk more about some of the, the, the weather um, – more memorable weather activity that that has happened in this region a little bit later. Sure, but 
going from TV into the mezzanine. Now, so tell, tell us a little bit about the mezzanine and, and what it is and what it does. I, I know about it because as my my role as a legislature, uh, I we, you know, the local delegation fought every year to make sure we had money in there uh, to keep the mezzanine going because you, it is the only statewide mezzanine. Is that correct? Uh, well, it is not, actually. The okay. first one was developed in Oklahoma exactly 30 years ago. That was started in no, 1994. I mean, in Kentucky. It's, uh, for uh, Kentucky, yes, yes, yes okay. that is right. Uh, there are other states that have yeah, mesonets, yeah. Uh, but ours is one of the more vast as far as the other states that have them. We're now up to 79 sites in 74 counties, and we continue to grow. Uh, we are going to put at least three more sites online before this year is out with potential for more. Uh, it's all about trying to find those local champions, and mm -hmm. one of the ways we do that is by uh, uh, collaborating with local officials, judge executives, emergency management officials, trying to scout out uh, these areas of land that are flat or relatively flat. Uh, that's not easy to do, especially in a state of Kentucky where elevation changes rapidly, especially yeah. the farther east you go. It's I mean, not you a go flat from the state. mountains to the flatlands. <laughs> yes, you do. So that's one of the challenges we face here. And the other challenge, especially with Appalachia and the east, where elevations are upwards of three or 4,000 feet, is not only finding flat ground, but also finding areas where the cell signal is sufficient enough. We rely on that heavily for our network. We have to have good cellular communications from the tower back to the operations center to make sure that we are able to produce that data and bring it online for the public use. And it is going to take some time, uh, especially in those more mountainous areas, to build more sites. But it is our goal to have at least one site in all 120 counties in Kentucky. And we believe we're going to get there. But you do have sites in all the different regions throughout Kentucky. Mm -hmm. And and. You know, I've I've thought this through a little bit, and I'm probably partially correct here, but I, I would suspect that a lot of counties want to have a mesonette because it can help them gather data for themselves. You know, whether they, you know, let's say maybe they may be in a drought, and it mm -hmm. can help them with some federal funding, especially for the farming community. You know, so there there are a lot of good reasons to have a a, a center a mesonette center in, in your community. If you don't have one, give Shane a call and he'll hook you up. <laughs> yeah. And it's not just about the weather we're measuring above ground. Yes, we measure temperature, humidity. We're measuring air pressure, wind speed, wind direction, dew point, all that good stuff. But mm -hmm. we're also measuring things below ground. At some 60 of our 79 sites, we have hydroprobes that extend all the way down to 40 inches below the surface. And those are taking in soil moisture amounts, water fraction by volume, critical for agriculture and the horticultural communities, and also soil temperatures at various depths from two inches, four inches of the top soil level, all the way down into the 40-inch level. And that is critical, especially as we move out of winter and into the spring planting season. And it also, you know, if, if you get a big snow coming through and it's been 50 degrees all, all, all winter, um, if that ground's not cold enough, it's it's going to melt quicker. <laughs> yeah, it is. You know, we had that one very cold week there in the middle of yeah. January, uh, eight days straight for Bowling Green where the temperature did not rise about 33 degrees. Right. It is becoming more unusual for us to see those long stretches. Yes, we still get snow. We still get temperatures near, if not sub-zero from time to time, but... Uh, a lot of the folks have been around the block for a while, especially those that have lived here since the 60s and 70s, will tell you, and they're right, winters are just not quite what they used to be. Yeah. And that's one of the things we're measuring 
is climate trends with the Mesonet system, detecting what times of the year are getting warmer, what times might be getting colder, what times might be getting drier. Uh, we've seen an increased number of flash droughts yeah. in recent years, even though the years are actually getting wetter. And that's a, a trend that goes along the lines with our seasons getting warmer, particularly winter around here. Mm -hmm. Anytime you get warmer, you have the ability for the atmosphere to hold more moisture. So overall speaking, we're seeing more precipitation annually, but it seems we've had a disturbing trend, especially dating back to 2016, of getting what we call these quick developing flash droughts. We saw that in fall of 2016. You might remember the fires over in yeah. Pigeon Forge, Gatlinburg, mm -hmm. and also in the mountains of eastern Kentucky. We had that again in the fall of 2019. Uh, we had near 100 degree heat yeah. at the end of September and the beginning of October that year. Highly unusual. Uh, we did it again in 2022. And then lo and behold, last year in 2023, we had not one but two flash droughts. One that occurred in late spring. It went away with the June and July rains only to come back in full song uh, by September and October. So uh, trends like that are what we track with this vast network of ours. That's awesome. And, and it's just good, good information to have, especially, you know, when it comes to our, our state, because we are a very diverse state and we have very diverse regions. So in your role as uh, the outreach manager at the Kentucky Mesonet, what do you see as the most uh, pressing challenges in weather education and public outreach? I think the most pressing challenge, and I see this a lot as I'm doing a number of presentations from schools K through 12 all across the state, is making sure that everybody knows about hazard mitigation. In other words, what can I do to limit the threat of severe weather on my life and my livelihood? Because we know there's going to be that next outbreak along the lines of the super outbreak of 74 or mm. the December 2021 tornado outbreak right. or the flood event that took place in the East Kentucky mountains that killed 40 people in 2022. We know those things are going to happen again. It's a matter of collaborating with uh, folks like the Ar Army Corps of Engineers, for example, over in Eastern Kentucky. How do we help these people that live in the low-lying valley areas to evacuate or get away in time before water rises into their homes in, in the the small communities where they live. And that's part of what we call being a more weather-ready nation. And it's our goal here as members of communicating in the science community to help the National Weather Service uh, with that concept that they developed back in 2011 to ensure the communities across not only Kentucky, but the nation in general, that they're ready, they're responsive, and resilient, the three R's they call them, mm -hmm. to extreme weather, water, and climate events. So it's all about reducing the impacts of weather, water, and climate events by transforming the way that people receive, understand, and act on that information, harnessing cutting-edge science and technology and engineering, providing the best observations, forecasts, and warnings, and then evolving uh, the National Weather Service to excel in the face of change through investment in their people, partnerships, and their performance. So one of my jobs there as outreach director in Mesonet is to help Kentucky become a weather-ready state mm -hmm. as part of a weather-ready nation. That's, that's great. And, uh, you know, you, you, we've talked about a few of the me memorable weather events that have happened uh, in Kentucky. Talk about some of the ones that you've covered and how this uh, experience as a broadcaster influenced your 
approach into educating others about about weather science? Well, obviously, over two decades, I covered many, a severe weather and winter weather event at yeah. WBKL, ranging from the big Christmas week storm in 2004, where we had a lot of ice and snow in the, the central and western part of the state, to the Super Tuesday outbreak of 2008. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's hard to believe that's been 16 years ago now. Uh, that was an overnight severe weather event, sort of along the lines of what we had in December 2021, although unfortunately, uh, the December 2021 outbreak was far more tragic and far more extensive. We had some uh, 20 tornadoes across the region. Uh, We knew coming in, I say we, uh, it was our weather team at WBCO at the time, myself and Ethan Emery, who was the morning meteorologist. He's now the Fox affiliate in Cincinnati. I remember pouring over data with him early that week. Uh, The event, of course, happened on a Friday night into the Saturday morning. But by Tuesday, it was becoming more real after looking at all the operational model data that we were going to see a significant severe weather episode, and it was going to occur during the overnight period. Now, did we think there would be the number of of intense tornadoes that there would be Mm -hmm. in all actuality coming out of that event that would be long-tracked and vicious? No, I don't know of anybody in his or her right mind who would have made that admission. But we knew that this had potential to be something. So we started drumming it up around midweek saying, hey, you need to be prepared. Make sure you've got weather radios on and on alert mode. Cell phones turned on because that's how you're going to know about this in the middle of the night. Of course, the event arrives, and by about 7.15 that Friday night, December 10th, that's when I first took to the airwaves. Little did I know at that point, Jim, that I was going to wind up being on air for 10 and a half hours solid nonstop with hardly a break in the action. I I believe the only time that we did not have a tornado warning within the coverage area of WBKO was from about 10 o'clock till approximately 1020. That's really the only appreciable break. So about 20 minutes within 10 hours. Yeah. And that break happened to fall within time of a newscast. So there really was no time for me to catch my breath. And then here came the next wave of activity across Western Kentucky. And that included the EF4, that monster tornado that as we all know, Mm -hmm. made it right through Mayfield, did tremendous amount of damage there. Just before it hit the city of Mayfield, though, at 925 that night, uh, that tornado missed the Kentucky Mesonet site in Graves County, which is located six miles west of Mayfield by only about 1,500 feet. Wow. Uh, But even so, it produced a wind gust there to 107.1 miles an hour. That's a three-second average wind gust. At that moment, it stood as the state's all-time wind record. Partly with the help of that information, the National Weather Service out of Paducah was able to issue tornado emergencies from Mayfield and places farther downstream, in other words, east or northeast of where that tornado was tracking. Fast forward about 55 minutes later, and that same tornado made it right over our main site in Caldwell County near Princeton. Right. And as it did so, it took that tower, basically mangled it, uh, but before it went offline, it produced a peak wind gust there of 120.1 miles an hour. So two wind records were set by that one EF4 tornado that night, and they were both set at Kentucky Mesonet site. So that just goes to show that the power of Mesonet and the data it provides. And 124 miles an hour on, on the wind gust, that's that's uh, hurricane level wind yeah hurricane starts at 74 so whenever you're up to 120 that's 
three. That is a Saffir Simpson three on that scale. Yeah. So that would be a strong hurricane. And of course, keep in mind, this tornado kept on tracking into Hopkins, Muhlenberg County, went over Dawson Springs, Bremen, Mm. kept on trucking all the way until it got to about Falls of Rough in Breckenridge County before it finally lifted. And then, of course, we all know what happened here in Bowling Green during the early morning hours of December 11th right. uh, at about 1.17. Those two minutes from 1.17 to 1.19 are forever etched in my mind because we were obviously under a tornado warning at that point. It had been and it, issued and it by, was really close to the station. Too. Yes, it was. It missed us by only 900 yards, so roughly about a quarter mile. Yeah. Uh, we did not know how close until, obviously, sun came up that Saturday morning, and then once daylight... Uh, uh, shown on the damage, we realized just how harrowing that was. But I will never forget being in front of the green screen at 117, tracking that storm as it moved into Bowling Green. We were noting a, a strong notch around that with the supercell and its circulation trying to tighten up as it moved closer to the city. Yeah. And I remember the back door, the garage door of the studio banging pretty loudly. Uh, this studio used to be used as a car dealership right. way back in the day, so th- that's one remnant from it. But I'd never heard it bang so loudly in the 22 years that I worked there. So that was pretty disconcerting to me. And at this point, I'm having to shout over that door. And I remember saying, I don't know how well you folks at home can hear me, but it's getting very loud in this studio. Well, obviously, there was some suction from one of the, the mesovortices or eddies spinning around that larger funnel that was the EF3 tornado as it passed over I-165 and then just to our north. And I remember we took the shot off of radar, looked at our webcam facing west southwest down Russellville Road to see if there was anything there. Obviously, at 1.18 in the morning, it's pitch black, so we're looking for lightning to try to illuminate the base of that storm cloud for anything right. we could find. And it was impossible to see because uh, this thing was rain-wrapped also. Uh, but we were obviously very concerned when we started to see power flashes and power going out block by block mm-hmm. down Russellville Road getting closer to I-165. And then all of a sudden, Ethan Emery says, I, I, hey, I think I might be seeing something. Shortly after he said that, that's when we lost power. Yeah, And we lost all data. We had no radar no satellite, no nothing. So we had to take to what I call 1970-style weather for the remainder of that event. And that lasted all the way until 5.30 in the morning where we had the, the data off my phone. We knew that more tornado warnings were still being issued. We had a, still an active weather situation, so we had to cover it. And we were hand-drawing these tornado polygons on a blank map with, wow. with no radar, no data, just trying to draw them as best as we could, tell folks, hey, you're still in the line of fire here. And it wasn't until a little after 5.30 in the morning before we finally signed off. Yeah. So w- with all of that, I mean, that that night, and I think a lot of us remember what we were doing that day and that, uh, that Friday night and that Saturday morning. I know I got out that Saturday morning and actually made it down the bypass where I tried to. Uh, you know, it was, it was, you know, it'd been d- destroyed. Uh, but we went and checked on a, a few elderly friends. And, you know, it, it was tragic. It was really mm-hmm. tragic. But... I think there were a lot of lessons learned from from that event and from that episode. Uh, what were what were some of the the positive takeaways from those ten hours that you saw in our community? Not, not besides you know people helping each other out, but that's one thing. But mm-hmm. also first responders and and people like yourself being on the air and and you know keeping us informed because that's what you do. 
I was amazed at how drawn together this community was in the days following this event. And everything from the cleanup, the first responders getting to the people who were impacted most heavily, like in the, the Creekwood area, over toward the Indian Hills subdivision, and just neighbor helping neighbor. Yeah. It, it was truly an amazing sight. The first day that I really got to see the damage firsthand was two days after the storm on Monday. Uh, that's when I hooked up with John Gordon. Uh, he's a meteorologist in charge of the Weather Service Office in Louisville. They are the ones responsible for issuing tornado warnings in this section of Central Kentucky. And by the way, he is the head of the Board of Directors for Kentucky Mesonet as well. Okay, makes uh, but sense. <laughs> I, I remember uh, hooking up with him about 10.30 that morning. He calls me and he says, uh, Shane, you're not going to believe this, but there were not one but two tornadoes that touched down within the city of Bowling Green wow. that Saturday morning. And I said, well, where, where was the other one? He said, come over to the, the National Corvette Motorsports Park and I'll show you. Yeah. So about 10 minutes later, our promos director at the time and I intercepted him there. Uh, we met up with some meteorology students from Western Kentucky University. And uh, Landon Hampton was there from whether or not. And even though we were competitors at the time, all that went out the window. You know, we, we embraced each other. We said, hey, glad you're all right. I embraced the, the meteorology students, said, hey, you know, I'm glad you all are all safe. Then I met up with John. We, we took a tour of the damage there, and, and it, it was really, really an emotional time yeah. for everybody. But, it, it, you know, bringing all those people together, it, you know, that's, that's, that's from a scientific standpoint. That's from a, a data-collecting standpoint because I think you all have the same goal is to, you know, be better prepared for future events and, and understanding what happened. You know, you talk about some of the areas, and, and I, I, I knew this would probably get off onto the tornadoes of, of, of December that year. And, you know, you talked about, uh, I think it was the Whispering Hills area, mm-hmm. uh, part of the Springfield neighbor, Spring Hill neighborhood, and then over in Indian Hills, but then you had the Magnolia area and along right. the bypass in Bowling Green. And, and a lot of people, you know, you, you – we know it happened, but uh, the trans park took a took a hit, and, yes. and there were, there was a lot of damage out there, which is out near where the the Corvette Museum and the Motorsports Park is. So, you know, we we had a lot of impacted areas all across the the county, all across the region, and um, you know it was tragic. But there's always lessons learned, and and you know things that can be best practices that come out of this. And I know with our mayor and our our county judge and our sheriff and chief of police everybody was coming together working together and and you know trying to figure all this out and make sure everybody was you know accounted for first and foremost Mm -hmm. but then you know making sure people aren't going in areas they shouldn't go into right uh, after after the the destruction with power lines down and things like that so you know hats off to you and and everybody that that were helping uh keeping us informed so you know you've you've been doing this a long time um you know, I even go back and remember the hailstorm of what 1998. Yeah, more than know. 25 years ago. Uh, it's hard to believe we now have a whole generation that does not remember that event. Well, our our oldest was a baby, but we we lost a car. You know, we called it the. It looked like it, it looked like a green golf ball after it was all said and done. But you know, a lot of a lot of damage in, and I remember all the cars that were damaged uh, in the region. And then, you know, you, you mentioned that there was also a uh, ice storm in 90 or 90 
94 or 5? Uh, 94, February 94. Yeah. In fact, I just blogged about this event for uh, the Kentucky Climate Center uh, last week. February 9th through 11th was the anniversary of that. And that was actually one of two major winter storms in Kentucky that year. There was one in January that featured both ice and mm-hmm. snow. The heaviest snow was up in the northern part of the state. And then we had some ridiculously cold temperatures a couple of days later. We got down to the teens and 20s below zero, almost statewide. Uh, Bowling Green still has a record low from that event. The all-time state record low was set January 1994 in Shelbyville, minus 37 degrees. Well, you you know, that ice storm, I I was actually working at WGGC at the time when they were still in Glasgow. Wow. And Amy and I had, uh, we had just come back from a, a trip and we made it back into Bowling Green just in time before they closed the interstate. <laughs> and, um, I, and, and I immediately went to Glasgow because we had to keep the, the station manned and we lost everything out there. And I was stuck over there for two days. I couldn't get back. Uh, we had the national guard at the radio station and at our transmitter site because you know, it was a state of emergency and hundred thousand watt radio station and you've right. got to be getting information out. So we were on army generators and we were, <laughs> we were broadcasting, you know, so we were keeping people up to date. It, and it's, a, it, if you don't know this, um, any radio station, TV station, their only reason for existing, it's not to provide you with top quality entertainment. Mm-hmm. It's to provide you with safety information. That's why we have the emergency broadcasting system. <laughs> exactly. And uh, that that's their main goal. All the other stuff is what they do when nothing's going on. Precisely. <laughs> now, I know that can be frustrating for those that yeah. want to see a bowl game or maybe a basketball game when there's severe weather going on and it's not affecting their county. Maybe it's two or three counties to the east of them. But and, most people don't know. If you don't do that, you're you're putting your FCC license in jeopardy. Exactly. So you have to do it. Yes. <laughs> and it's the right thing to do. Man, It's uh, it's been pretty cool talking with you. But before I let you go, um, aspiring meteorologists and individuals uh, interested in p- pursuing a career in weather, what would you mm-hmm. tell them? I would tell them there is still a place for broadcast meteorologists. The way that people are getting the information, the way it's being disseminated now, is changing, and it will keep on changing. Obviously, television is a very different animal now in this digital era than it was 20 years ago or even 10 years ago, but there's still a place for those that can communicate the science. It's one thing for people to get the information from a national source like weather.com or the Weather Channel or something along those lines, but it's another for them to hear it from their local meteorologist, one that they know is living and breathing right there in their hometown. It does make all the difference in the world. Absolutely. And WKU's got a pretty good program. It does. <laughs> I'm partisan to that. Yeah, yeah, I'm no, a graduate yeah. of the program there, but I also work there now. But, yes, it is the only school in the state with a bachelor's of science in meteorology. You can get all that you want and all that you need in terms of meteorology and climatology classes right up the hill at Western Kentucky University. We have some fine professors there, including my own boss, the state climatologist, Dr. Jerry Brodsky, who just came on board Mm -hmm. back in August of 2022. You've got Dr. Josh Durkee up there, Dr. Greg Goodrich, and a number of others who who are very well experienced. Uh, Some have been at the university for a long, long time now and understand 
uh, not only the weather patterns of this area, but weather patterns globally. Well, um, great program, great opportunities. And so before now, this is really the we're going to get off on entertainment for a second. Okay. Because Justin, our engineer, and I, we've always been big, big fans of the movie Twister. Uh huh. And so there's a new version coming out soon, or, right. or maybe it's a, a a follow up to the original. But you, you said something earlier about where the doors were being sucked in at the at the TV station, and there's a part in the movie Twister where they go suck zone. Uh huh. Is is that the same thing? <laughs> yes, that's what they're referring to the sucking of one of those eddies or meso vortices within the larger tornado funnel and i gotta say whether it's an oscar winner or whether it's a flop yes i am going to see this I'm going next to. twisters version <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna be there on opening night this summer well we'll probably see you there anyhow <laughs> hey shane thanks for being on the decisory group podcast thanks so much for having me jim thanks to shane hollandy for joining us on the decisory group podcast that was good stuff and kind of a history lesson on some of the weather events that have been happening throughout South Central Kentucky over the last 30 or 40, 50 years. And I want to thank you for checking out the DeCesare Group podcast. New episodes come out on Mondays at 5 a.m. Central, so be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform. And if you like what you hear, take a moment and leave us a review. Stay connected with the DeCesare Group by following us on LinkedIn, Facebook, X, and Instagram, and visit our website, thedecesarygroup.com. Today's program is produced by the Decesary Group, a full-service public relations and consulting firm specializing in small and medium-sized businesses in South Central Kentucky. Our engineer is the sensational Justin Decesary. That's my little weather pun there. With content contributions from Brooke Mattingly and Amy Decesary. I'm Jim Decesary, and join us again next time for the Decesary Group Podcast. <laughs>